we are week four in a series in the Gospel of Luke. We are journeying through the Gospel of Luke chapter by chapter. Uh, we are looking at statements of Jesus that give us pause uh, to notice and wonder, and we're digging into those statements. Last week, we did three statements from uh, chapter six. Today, I'm just going to focus on one statement from Jesus in chapter seven. So uh, before we get to Luke seven, I want to start with just telling you a story about my friend Christian. He started a relationship with Jesus when he was in high school. And uh, in 1998, that's a long time ago, 25 years ago, uh, he was in high school and I was uh, on Young Life staff in a community just south of Nashville, Franklin, Tennessee. And Christian came on this camp and we went to Frontier Ranch, Kenny Kramer, where you lived at the time in 1998. Was that your home, home place? Uh, we showed up at Frontier Ranch and Christian came into a relationship with Jesus and I was with him when he did. Uh, really beautiful, wonderful <clears throat> time with him. Um, post high school for Christian uh, was a bit like the prodigal who kind of left home and kind of left his faith and spent his days in wild living. Uh, it was nine years later, after he began a relationship with Jesus at this Young Life camp, um, where Christian actually, like, this, like the story uh, in Luke 15, the prodigal son story, came back to his senses. He came back to his faith and, in fact, became a Young Life leader himself and was taking kids to camp all these years Later, Lindsay and I were in California at the time. I was in seminary, and we were back in Tennessee uh, for a wedding that I was officiating, and I got some, an opportunity to spend some time with Christian and just hearing the story about this journey of coming back to faith and now being a leader in ministry and taking kids to camp like he was a kid at camp with me. And so we spent some time uh, talking, and he was telling me this story about what it was like for him uh, at camp. And as he told the story, one of the things that he said was that he got sick at camp and he had to miss out on a lot of the things that were going on at camp that week because he got sick. And then he said this about himself. He goes, what an idiot, like as he told the story, like talking about himself. And I was like, bro, that, that's a little harsh, man. Like you can't help getting sick at camp. Like do you call yourself an idiot often? And he said, a lot, all the time. He said, I never think I have enough fruit in my life. He said, I never think I'm doing enough. And so we spent time talking about that and actually looking at Luke chapter 15, the prodigal son story. Most of you probably know the story. The, the son takes his father's inheritance and leaves that relationship and that place, and he goes into his life and he spends all of his money in wild living and he ends up like in a pig pen eating pig food and he comes to his senses and he, he's gonna go back home and he's just hoping that his father might hire him to be like a servant. That's what he's hoping for because of his behavior was so atrocious. But you know the story, the father instead runs to the son and welcomes him home with unconditional love and puts a robe on him and gives him the family ring and then throws a celebration banquet uh, because he's so thankful that his son has come back home. And so we're talking about this story 
together and Christian goes, I like everything about the story, but the father still needs to smack his son upside the head, don't you think? And then he goes, and he goes, and maybe like get him out in the field to work a little bit too. So he's like, he's like hearing the story and he's, but he's saying like, I like everything about it, but his father still needs to like smack him. It's like the, like the movie Incredibles when she like, pull yourself together, you know, right? Like the son also needs that is what Christian was saying. And I said, bro, like, that's not who God is. That's not who God is. Christian, you don't understand grace. For a lot of my Christian life, neither did I. And I'm still understanding more, more of what grace really is. Uh, it is scandalous. It is unmerited. It is radical. A few years before that moment that I had with my friend Christian, a few years before that, I was a youth pastor at a pretty large church, and this might shock you, but Lindsay and I, you know, we're, we've been married 25 years, and we had a marital conflict. I know you probably think that we never have marital conflict. Newsflash, we're just like you. Um, and so we had this marital conflict, and I was, I was feeling guilty about it. And I was scheduled to speak the next day. So the next morning after this conflict the night before, I get on the phone with another guy that was on our youth ministry staff, and I say, hey, man, I'm gonna need you to speak for me tonight. Because I was just lathered up in guilt. And Lindsay is privy to this conversation, and she hears the conversation, and what I was, I was getting myself covered because I felt guilty, and she heard the phone call, and she said, Jason, that's not who God is. And then she said, Jason, you don't understand grace. Christian and I were living in old wineskins trying to hold the new wine of Jesus. And Jesus says this in Luke 5, we've been talking about this week after week, if you put the new wine of Jesus' grace and mercy and unconditional love in the old wineskin, the new wine will run out. You must hold new wine in new wineskins. And Christian and I were operating as old wineskins, making life with Jesus about our performance, which is religion, not grace. We, we must leave religion behind if we are going to be new wineskins to hold the new wine of Jesus. And we will see Jesus coming against old wineskin, religion, pressure again today in our statement. I wanna show one verse to you from James 4, 6. But he, Jesus, gives us more grace. Say more grace. More grace. New mercy, more grace. He gives us more grace. That is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humility is new wineskins. 
Humility is new wineskins. And in humility and in an acknowledgement of how much we need God's mercy and grace, we can receive grace in a really fresh, healing, transforming kind of way in our lives. I've now become convinced that the more we, you and I, us, the more we understand and embrace in our lives our own brokenness and our own need for God and his mercy and his grace, the more we understand and experience God's amazing grace in a fresh way. Humility and acknowledgement of our own brokenness and need. The more we need a rescue, the more we understand that we need a rescue, guess what? The more rescue we experience. Here's what Jesus says in the statement of the morning in Luke 7, 47. Here's where we're gonna be today. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. The passage is Luke 7, 36 to 50. It will be a very familiar passage to most of you. And familiarity, as we've been saying in the series, kills wonder. So I don't want the familiarity of this passage to kill the wonder of God's amazing, radical, scandalous, life-saving, transforming grace in the story. So, so, so lean in to the story in a fresh way, I pray today. So let me read this. If you have your Bibles, you can read along with me. This is, this is the word of God. This is life for us. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Let me pause here for a second. Who has Jesus been in battle with the previous two chapters about the Sabbath? The Pharisees. Not just about the Sabbath, but all of their traditions and rules that they added onto the Sabbath, and they were using something that God had given for rest, and they, had used, they were using it as a tool to control people, and Jesus is coming against their religion. And so now it's interesting just to consider for a second, he's been in battle with the Pharisees. Well, a Pharisee has now invited Jesus into his own home, and Jesus says, yeah, I'll come. I'll come into your house and speak with you and your guests. That is a manifestation of grace all by itself. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And when a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair and kissed them and poured perfume on them. Do you think that she made a scene at this dinner party? Do you think this was like, like eyes are dotted, T's are crossed, like everything's going the way that this Pharisee thought it might go? She kind of interrupted the whole thing, didn't she? Like, this is, this is a messy, real, courageous, 
pretty risky kind of a situation going on here for her. And the host, the host was not about it. He was not about it. And so he's watching this thing happen. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Like, I don't know if he like thought of it that way, but that's kind of how I think about it. Like, full of judgment, not only judging the woman because he knew what kind of woman she was, but who was he also in judgment of? Jesus himself. Like if Jesus was a true prophet of God, he would know who's touching him and he would not allow it. So he's in judgment of Jesus and the woman. So Jesus answered him, Simon calls him by his name. I have something to tell you. And then Simon goes, tell me, teacher. It's almost like he's in this like moment of like, if he knew, eh, he's not a man of God. She's a sinner. Simon, I'd like to tell you something. Tell me, teacher. <laughs> right? Teach it, switch it. It's his house. Jesus is a rabbi. He invites. Jesus is the, he's the guest of honor. He's like the keynote speaker. And so he's going to speak. Tell me, teacher. I mean, it's just, that's what religion has to do, right? That's how you, you, you got to maneuver and dodge and weave and, and that's what he's doing. Makes me want to throw up in my mouth a little bit. <laughs> Tell me, teacher. Jesus' words, verse 41. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. A denarii was one coin and it was worth a day's wage. So one guy owned 500 days of wages and one guy owned 50 days of wages. Verse 42, neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled, you have judged correctly, Jesus said. And then he turned to the woman. He turned to this woman who was making this incredible scene total mess, total mess of a human being, turns to her and makes an example of her. And he says, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Our statement of the day, verse 47, therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests who began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Familiar story. 
I want to just share some things um, that I notice about this story and then ask some questions with you about what, what to wonder, what to wonder about this particular story. First thing that I'll point out that I notice is that Jesus models relational, missional ministry everywhere he goes. Certainly here in this story, he's in Simon's house. Again, Simon is a Pharisee. Jesus has been in some battles with the Pharisees. And yet here he is in one of the Pharisees' own homes eating, to which I go, is there anything more relational than being in someone else's home, having a meal at their table than that? There's other places that we see Jesus in people's homes. Luke 5, Levi's house. We know that Levi was a Jewish tax collector. He was Jewish. He sold out on his own people. He's taxing them by the oppressive Roman government. The Jewish people hated tax collectors. Levi actually becomes Matthew, who wrote the gospel of Matthew, if you didn't know that. Levi's house starts following Jesus. He throws a banquet with all of his other tax collectors and sinful cronies, and they all come, and all the Pharisees are like, why are you eating and drinking with sinners? And where's Jesus? In their house. Is there anything more relational than sharing a meal in someone's home at the table? Luke 19, Zacchaeus, another tax collector. If you grew up in church like me, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Yeah. Climbs up in the sycamore tree. It wasn't a sycamore tree, was it? Greg, you and I were in Jericho. Was it a sycamore tree? Did they say that when we were, on, we were in Jericho? Hmm, I don't remember. I don't know. But that's the, that's, the, that's the little jingle we learned when we were in Sunday school, right? Zacchaeus, I digress. Climbed up in the tree because he couldn't see because he was short. And Jesus said, come down from the tree. I want to go with you where? Where did Jesus invite Zacchaeus to? To go where? To his house. To his house. Is anything more relational than that? John chapter 4. Not a Jewish person, not a tax collector, not a Pharisee, not a Jew at all, a Samaritan woman. The Jews hated the Samaritans. North. They were north and they were... They were it was, it was racism. It was like they were inbreeding with Samaritans. And it was, it, was, it was a thing. Trust me, it was a thing. And this Samaritan woman at Jacob's well, Jesus interacts with her, spends time with her, and ministers to her. Jesus models relational, missional ministry everywhere he goes, no matter the reputation of the person. Like, I think that's what I want you to grab in this. No matter what the reputation of the person was, Jesus is like, yeah, we can spend some time together. Like, and I just go, yeah, yeah. If, you, if you want to invite me to your house and you want to feed me, I, yeah, I'll say yeah. I'll say yeah. Like, Jesus models relational ministry everywhere he goes. No matter if they were Jew or Samaritan, no matter if they were a tax collector or a Pharisee, relational, missional ministry. We see it everywhere in the Gospels. Second thing I notice, this woman was a woman of the city. That's not in the text. That's my paraphrase, a woman of the city. Most scholars, commentators, suggest that she uh, was a prostitute. We don't know for sure, but that's what most scholars suggest. Regardless, 
her reputation preceded her as we hear about in the narrative. Here's some context about a meal like this at Simon Pharisee's house, if you don't know how this, what this kind of looked like. So I'm gonna try to paint the picture for you. Um, Jesus was a rabbi and he was invited into the home to teach. And these weren't private affairs necessarily, but if you were gonna sit at the table or recline at the table, you had to be an invited guest. But other people could come to the, the, the dinner where a rabbi was teaching, but they would have to stay out on the edges of the room. And they weren't permitted to speak and engage and process into the conversation, but they could be a part of it just to hear the rabbi teach. And it was customary for guests to remove their sandals and for servants of the host. So it had been a customary thing for Simon's servants to wash Jesus' feet when he came in. But as he said in the story, no one did that for him. And he was reclining at the table, which was the position of like a, at a formal meal. So don't think like your dining room table or your kitchen table with your chairs and things, but a lower table with pillows around it. And Jesus is like leaning on his elbow into the table with his feet behind him. And I don't know how they really ate like that. I'm not sure how that went, but his feet, his like sandaled feet full of dirt and muck were behind him, you know, reclining at the table. Well, the people of the room are like privy to that, all the feet of the table. You kind of see the picture I'm trying to paint for you? So she's on the edges and Jesus's feet is the closest thing to her because he's reclining at the table. And here's what I want you to see in your mind's eye. This woman who had lived a sinful life in that town moved away from the edges and into the light at Jesus's feet. And I want you to remember the phrase, step into the light. I just want you to remember that phrase. And when she did so, she wet Jesus's feet with her tears. Uh, it was a very public display of her affection and her love for Jesus. It was disruptive to the dinner party, know that. It was disrupting the dinner party, but it was a public display of her love and affection for the Savior. The fact that she anointed his feet instead of his head was a deep sign of her own humility. So we see her love, we see her humility. And I would suggest that her tears are evidence of her sorrow for sin and her brokenness. So her love is pretty evident. Her humility is quite evident. Her sorrow, her tears, her brokenness. But I, what I don't want you to miss in the story is this. You must see her courage. Can you imagine the courage that it required of her to move off of the edges? I mean, she is back here, not an invited guest. Simon, the Pharisee, knew of her many sins. Do you think other people in the room knew who she was and what she had done? 
the amount of courage that it must have required in her desperateness to step away from the edges toward the table to the feet of Jesus, who is the honored guest. The courage is palpable in the story. I don't think we can understand the amount of courage that it was required of her to do so. At Simon's house, the Pharisee's house, do you, do you know in Jewish law what the law said about adultery? Do you know? You get stoned to death. And when you are desperate, though, when you are desperate in your brokenness and need, I think you care less about what everybody else thinks about you. Don't you? I get to uh, coach high school basketball, and I was at the gym a few weeks ago early. We had early practice, and I, I, it's really a thing. Like, if you get to high school, like, four, four, five, you're, you're, you're dead in the water with traffic. So you, like, got to get there early before four, or you got to get there, like, 4.15. You know, you know what I'm saying? Like, you don't want to be in the after school traffic. You don't. So I was like, I was there a little early. And so I go into the gym, and uh, I was just in there a little early, and uh, Mac, you were in there, and it was one of your, I think one of your uh, probably senior, uh, like a TA or whatever, and she had this black hoodie on, and it just had like white letters on it, and I loved it, and it just simply said, your fear of looking stupid is holding you back. And I went, that's good. I went home and talked to my daughter about it. Like, I think this woman wasn't consumed anymore about what everybody else was thinking. I think she just needed an encounter with the grace and the mercy of Jesus. And so she stepped off the edges, into the light of grace. Two opposite reactions to Jesus in the story. What we see in the woman, brokenness, humility, courage. What we see in Simon, arrogance, pride, right? Simon knows, this is from the text, what kind of woman this is. Here, Here's the language I'm going for. Simon knew what kind of woman this, this was. He sees her behavior and it leads him to his judgment because he's under law. He's operating in old wineskins. Jesus knows who this woman is. You hear the difference? Simon knows what kind of woman this is. Jesus sees who she is. And he operates in compassion, which is his grace and his mercy. The law of religion always comes with judgment looking from the outside. Religion loves behavior modification. Religion loves judgment and fear and outside-in behavior modification. Religion loves to see if they can get you to behave. The grace of Jesus always comes with compassion looking to the inside. And the heart 
is always what Jesus sees first and foremost. It's an inside-out transformation. We look at the story and we go, well, Jesus is certainly, no question, he's compassionate and merciful to this woman. But he also is proclaiming with authority to everyone in the room, I am also Messiah. I come with compassion, but I also come with authority to forgive sin. So he comes with compassion, but he also comes with authority to forgive sin. Who missed him? Who missed the Messiah? Simon, because he's blinded by his own religion. He's blinded because he refuses to stop being an old wineskin. And I just go like, how do you miss the creator and the rescuer of the world literally in your house at your table? How do you miss that? How do we miss that? And I'm gonna suggest that we... Consider this. This is how we miss Jesus. Whoever has been forgiven little loves little. When we aren't viscerally aware of how much we need forgiveness and how much we have received it, we miss Jesus. The woman of the city did not miss Jesus because she knew exactly how much she needed his forgiveness. Question, what, what, think about this, what did the woman bring to be so seen, valued, honored, forgiven? What did she bring? What did she do? And I go, I look at this where I go, there's two things that for me go like, what, what did this woman bring? She brought her tears and she brought her faith. That's it. She brought her brokenness and her need and she brought her faith. And she didn't miss him. And in that place, the courage for her to step into the light of grace, desperate, fully aware of her many sins. What I wonder for us is where do you see yourself in the story? Where do you see yourself in the story? More like Simon? More like the woman? Perhaps you feel pressure to perform. Pressure like my friend Christian did. I never never think I'm doing quite enough. There's never enough fruit in my life. What an idiot. Perhaps you feel that kind of pressure, that kind of religious pressure like I did, like Simon does, pressure to straighten, straighten up, straighten up and start getting it right. Like pressure to manage your own sin by yourself. Pressure to not tell the truth about your own brokenness because if you started telling the truth about who you really are and about where you've been and what you've done, oh my goodness, what would people think of me? Tell me, teacher. Pressure, religious pressure, misses the grace 
of Jesus when he's in our very own homes. And I'm inviting you to join the woman who had lived a sinful life. I'm inviting you to join the pastor who had lived a sinful life into the light at Jesus' feet. What was Jesus' response to the simplicity of her faith and the tears? Verse 44, he saw her. He turned to her. Verse 44. Verse 44 to 46. He made an example of her faith. She made a huge scene, and it was a messy scene. And I wonder sometimes, if someone made a scene like that in here, what would we be thinking and feeling? Like if somebody came in the back of the room right now and made a huge scene, and the service had to be interrupted or whatever, and there's like weeping, literally like weeping here. Like all of our attention would go to that place. Don't you think? Like if a woman from Fort Collins who had lived a sinful life, and most of us in this room know her reputation, and she started banging on that door, and Shane, you go let her in, she comes in here and makes a scene. Every single one of us, are, we're gonna be looking where? We're gonna be looking right at her because she's making a scene. And Jesus, full of compassion, makes an example of her faith. Grace is scandalous. It's radical. You gotta leave religion to see it, to embrace it, to be comfortable with the mess of people who are embracing grace and are saying, I will be another messy truth teller like this woman. Because if you're not embracing new wineskin, you'll judge the hell out of her. Verse 47 and 48, he forgave her. Verse 50, he spoke the everlasting peace of God over her. The scandal of grace. The scandal of grace. New wineskin, new wine. Do you believe today that God sees you? Sees you, who you are, where you are, where you've been, what you're bringing, what you're leaving, what you're hiding, whatever. God turns to you and he acknowledges you and your story. And the promise The promise is that God forgives anyone who comes in humility and faith. And the promise is that Jesus speaks everlasting peace over you. This is who God is. This is who God is. The God of all grace, the God of all comfort, the God of all hope, the God of all peace, who is not shaken up at all when the woman of the city comes in and makes a huge scene and brings her tears and her faith and Jesus goes, everybody everybody gather around. I'm gonna make an example of this woman right here so that you understand who I am and what it means to hold new wine. And I wanna suggest what the woman of the city is telling us today, what her testimony might be to us this morning. 
I believe she might stand up here on the stage and go, the most, you know what? The most destitute get the most of God. Because I was the most destitute. I think she might say, the more hope that you need, the more you have it in Jesus. I think she might say, the more powerless you are. Like, was she powerless in that moment? She was facing a death sentence by the law. The more powerless you are, the more power you have. I think she might say, when you surrender to Jesus, you get set free. This church, Two Rivers Church, longs to see those of you in the religious performance trap, like Christian, like me, like Simon, get set free. Freed up to be messy truth tellers who recognize that grace and mercy is the key to true freedom in Jesus. Freed to know that true strength doesn't come from self-will, but from surrender. And I wanna say on behalf of our leadership team, Lindsay and I as your pastors, our staff team, our life group leaders, our, our River Kids teachers, our, our middle school and high school leaders, like I, I wanna say on behalf of, of, of Two Rivers Church, we have no stones in our hands. And more importantly, Jesus doesn't either. Remember the story in John 8? The woman was set up, woman caught in adultery. The law said, stone such women. Jesus draws in the, in the dirt, gets all the attention on him off of her. Because people love to look at sin, right? Like, we love to look at sin. Everybody's looking at her with stones, and Jesus draws in the dirt and turns the attention away from her onto Jesus. And he makes this famous statement. Anyone here who doesn't have any sin in their life, feel free to cast the first stone. And one by one, boom, 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 boom. Until it's just Jesus and her, right? You know the story. And then he says to her, is no one here to condemn you? No one. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. Jesus is not interested in rubbing our noses in our stuff. That's what religion does, though. Jesus actually came against that. And he's inviting you to see new wine and to be a new wineskin so your life can get transformed this morning. Only, only setting us free. For freedom, Christ has set us free. For freedom, for freedom to experience true abundant life in his name and his way. And some of you in this room need a fresh reminding this morning of the scandal of grace. Some of you in this room need to hear it maybe for the first time. Maybe it's about time that you stop calling yourself an idiot. And maybe it's about time that you stop saying, there's not enough fruit in my life. Or I never think I'm doing enough. And leave religion behind. Step into humility, brokenness, need, and receive new wine and have your life literally transformed. The rebuke of Simon the Pharisee 
in that house on that day is not because this woman was at the meal. That was, that was normal. Like, like people were always at these meals around the edges. This woman was offensive to religion because she did not stay on the edges and in the dark. She brought the truth of who she was, all those tears, all that brokenness to the feet of Jesus. Encourage. And I wonder, I wonder if you are staying in the edges of life and in the dark. I wonder how many, how many spaces like this that you've been to in your life but you're still like you're still on the edges, kind of back in the back in the dark, and wrestling with all that religious pressure, and too afraid to let your story come into the light with Jesus. And I wonder, will you, with fresh faith and courage, step into the light today? No matter, Orchard Team, you can come back up. Um, I wanna say this. No matter what you've done, no matter what guilt and shame you carry, by the authority of the name of Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, by the power of his blood shed on the cross of Calvary, And by the truth of his resurrection, in humility and faith, when you come to Jesus in humility and in faith, here is what he declares to you. Through faith in Jesus, your many sins have been forgiven. Your sins, your sins have been forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the hope of the world. But it's actually more personal than that. It's the hope for your life. And it's the hope for my life. Where would we be without the grace and the mercy of Jesus? I wanna put a verse up and I'm gonna invite you to read this verse with me. And then we're gonna sing a couple songs in response. And um, we're gonna have communion together as a church. Communion is the most, I believe, the most palpable way for you to be reminded of the gospel of grace. The body of Jesus broken, the blood of Jesus shed for you, for your forgiveness, for your peace. But we're gonna do this in a little bit of a different way for some of you. Certainly in the back of your pews, there are those cute little packets of communion elements. And in the worship, when you wanna receive, just spend a moment with the Lord and receive. But some of you today, I believe, need to step into a new place, into a new healing, into a new deliverance, in humility and also in courage. And so I'm gonna give you an opportunity to do that. 
And I'm just gonna leave some communion packets on the front. And you will have an opportunity to come to the altar and receive communion here. And if you're in the room and you see that, I just, I just want you to operate in faith and worship over whatever's happening up here. But some of you as a, because you need a fresh anointing of God's mercy and grace in your life, I'm gonna invite, I'm gonna invite you. It's gonna take some courage. You're gonna have to tell someone in your pew to stand up and you're gonna have to move down here and it's, it's just gonna be a thing. But I think some of you need to come up here and you need the Lord to minister to you up here. And those of you there, receive communion and worship over what's happening here. So we're gonna pull up 1 John 5, 1 John 1, 5 to 7, if we could pull that up. Would you read this with me? This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Hallelujah. If you do a Greek word study of that word all, guess what you're gonna find it means. All means all, all the time. All means all. Your many sins have been forgiven in Jesus. Shalom, shalom to you. Let's worship.